This is the Musual Mental Health Podcast. I am chatting to Callum Huggin today. Callum is a solo and chamber percussionist. He's also a professor of marimba and percussion at Trinity Conservatoire in London, a junior Royal Conservatoire of Scotland lecturer in percussion, but also is a guest visiting artist at a host of other conservatoires around the UK. Callum is also a recording artist playing on all sorts of different people's albums and has actually released his own solo album as well. So, so excited to have you here. How are you doing, Callum? Yeah, good. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's so oh, nice. Thank you so much for being here. It's ace. So the way I've been starting the podcast um, when I've been chatting to the previous people so far is just asking how you got into music as a career. My sister was going to piano lessons, an older sister, and I have an identical twin brother who you know very well. And growing up, we used to go and sit in the car waiting for my sister Fiona to go to her piano lessons and come home. So we kind of got into piano by the sort of jealousy thing. You know, I want to do what she's doing. Um, and then from that, studied piano for quite a few years, um, got to a certain level. But Andrew, at that point, my brother, kind of ditched piano and took took up the cello and from that uh, primary school he managed to go and all these orchestral residentials band camp whatever you want to call it and I started to get jealous because I wasn't getting the same social opportunities that he was but because I could play piano and read the music um our, our head of music at high school was like well just go up the back play percussion you can hit the drum in time you know, if it sounds good in the orchestra, you can come and have lessons. So kind of started like that and got lessons in high school. Who was um, your high school teacher? It was Scott Arnott. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And still to this day, it's really, really nice to see him and have such a close relationship still. Um, and then from that, from high school, Scott did the right thing as an amazing teacher and passed us on to junior conservatoire or junior academies it was back then, where I'm sure that's where we met. It was, yeah, back in the day. Back in the day. And then from there, studied at the Scottish and then a whole host of other conservatoires and got into a profession like that, really. Fantastic. So what was it about percussion that interested you so much? Because obviously with the piano, it's the one instrument, but percussion is this hugely diverse range of instruments, skills, abilities. Tell me a bit more about that. <laughs> It's incredible. You don't get bored, that's for sure. And I think especially going through sort of education systems, your focus, you can't lose focus. And I know now specialising on a single instrument, practising the same instrument quite often, I have to really put a schedule in place for myself to be really disciplined to be able to achieve what it is I need to do. But ha growing up and going at, at, to the conservatoire, just like having the opportunity to play in a whole host, like snare drum, tunes, cymbals, maracas, castanets, triangle, like all of them. There was no two days ever the same. And it was, it was just really engaging. Kept you entertained, not boring at all. But then at some point, slightly overwhelming because there was so much. And that's what led me to sort of specialise um, nowadays. Absolutely. And I mean, there's so much set up and packed down that's involved as a percussionist as well you're always the first to arrive and the last to leave in an orchestra first in, right? last out and it's not even orchestra just for anything even recitals and projects yeah we just need to make sure that we've got 
I was talking to a colleague today and it's even things like floor plans we're contacting venues about now just to make sure that we can get in and out of buildings and make sure there's enough room to get around doors and like set up stage space. So there's a lot more logistics to it. Um, but the benefit is that we don't need to go to the gym very often. We're I mean, all there is that. people, very, very fit. And actually that's something that came from my teachers. Um, I had two of the most incredible teachers and during my education really focused on like just keeping the body fit like looking after ourselves mind and body but specifically I guess their role was to train the body a lot more at that point so there was a lot of pastoral care involved in your upbringing as a musician as well so much I was so lucky so incredibly lucky and actually to be able to call my main teachers my solo teachers really close friends now is like incredible I mean they saw me have breakdowns during international competition times and you know really ridiculous moments that you're growing up you're learning who you are you're pushing your boundaries you know and they've seen me through things like that and even nowadays I mean not since the pandemic but nowadays pre-pandemic I would still go and try and go for like I call it my musical MOT once a year just to have like some technique lessons and just like a check-in to make sure and I would still feel about this small in the lessons just like nervous but it's good you know but yeah I had some of the most really caring teachers that just really cared about the music and myself as an artist. And about you as a whole musician by the sounds of things as well. Yeah massively so and I think that's something that I try to put onto my students and my teaching. I Teaching is a massive part of my career it's not just it never has been just about performance it's been able to pass on the gifts that I was given um, and that's a total privilege to be able and to the care and the love and the attention as well I think from what you're saying there you've had such a holistic journey with music so far it was amazing I remember in first year at the conservatoire I just remember being really tight my body was tight I don't know I was just a lot of tension in my body for playing and I didn't see it as a problem until I started to play solo marimba stuff and Jasmine Kohlberg who was my first marimba teacher I remember turning around to the heads of department saying, can you do yoga with him? And actually, I did yoga with Kurt Hans Kudika for the first six months of my first year in my lessons. And he'd be taking a stick and like prodding me with it to make sure like, just like pushing to make sure that I was relaxed. You, you wouldn't get away with any of I mean, that. that sounds that sounds like the least relaxing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but it was amazing for the body and to actually um, stretch. And then later on, when I went to study in Mannheim in Germany, um, we actually took some stretch classes with the ballet dancers because there's a ballet school attached to the music hall, surely. Um, and that was really good just to yeah lengthen the body and try and really solve this tension. But I've just had teachers that cared. And I think that's, well, more than half the battle with music, I think. Do you know, it's one of these things where I actually think all teachers care. And at some point, if there's a teacher that has said something that is I don't know it's it's affected their student and is, is long lasting you know I, I speak to Adam Letman in episode two about a conversation he had with his teacher in the car and how he wanted to you know specialize in classical composition and this teacher laughed at him and said oh well I mean you're never going to make a career out of that and it actually put him off music for a number of months and you have to kind of wonder sometimes what has happened to that individual teacher that's made them so cynical to the I'll, industry i'll be really really honest and say that my instrumental teachers have never been like that I, i'm really really lucky but my 
I know of people who have gone through similar things and I know other musicians who I guess my question would be is who are they to judge and also tell you the artist or musician that you should become because only you can offer what you do no one else can do that and that's something that I try and help all my students with is that even though I can give them all the tools and I'm not going to give them the answers because only they can provide the answers that they that that are correct for them and that's the most important thing yeah people who are affected by the industry I think this is more and more becoming spoken about so hopefully it's not going to affect future generations as things start to open up and conversations do happen Mm -hmm. I mean we were talking before we started recording about the fact that um, mental health is much more part of lessons now and it's forming the whole musician within a a lesson it shouldn't just be about scales or technique or concertos or whatever it is you're working on that day it's about finding the musician as a whole because and again I talk about this with Greg Lawson and a couple of other people in the other podcasts about not wanting to create miniature versions of yourself as a teacher but actually supporting that individual to become to actually find out who they are I guess yeah speak their own truth is something that Sam McShane had said in an earlier podcast as well yeah that's amazing way to put it um where I work at Trinity Lab and I was identified they're really good to their staff where it was identified as someone who had extremely close contact within the percussion department with the students because I'm the only teacher that gets to see all the students as a solo marimba teacher so they all get hours with me rather than just having your individual teacher they all come and I guess because I was the youngest member of staff for quite a while um, I was closer in age gap to the students and I also know because I've been on the journey most recently um they identified me as someone who students were opening up to and of course I was also going to safeguarding or uh, student services to try and like pass on any sort of issues or worries that I had about a student but now they provided certain tutors with them mental health first aid training which has been really super helpful but it's also been a reminder that we are not clinicians we're not trained to deal with a lot of the problems but what we can deal with is the music and the structure and the learning and the learning environment so even so I spend a lot of time working on structures with my students timetables schedules um blocking things down now this is way more than I didn't have this from my teachers this is something I've learned in my own sort of career in education but I don't see it as a bad thing I see it as an incredible tool that they can take forward and whether they take it into music or they take it into another sector industry so I mean you know just tools for them to be able to thrive really I just don't want anyone to ever be struggling silently it's the worst thing so as long as we can have that open communication and lessons I think it's useful definitely do you know I'm going to backtrack slightly there because I was really interested in how you were talking about you know we, we want to support our students as teachers but also we need to recognize that we're not clinicians I would say there what you've identified more than anything is that not only the mental health of the student is important, but actually the mental health of the teacher too. Yeah, and we have to have boundaries. Of course, when I was younger, I I think I've been teaching at Trinity now for seven or eight years. So I was in my mid-twenties when I got the post. And I think then I was, I found it difficult to, well, I put up clear barriers because I was close to age to some of the postgraduate students. Um, and I was trying to protect myself a lot more, but actually I didn't need to do that. 
as a specialist in the subject, you just have to deliver what it is you do. Um, but it is about protecting ourselves as well and not putting ourselves in vulnerable situations. And if there ever is a niggle or doubt that you're uncomfortable, of course, you should go to your line manager straight away and just make sure that you are looked after as well as the student. But it's having that, asking for help. You know, as, I think it's a lot of like specialists in what we do. We think, well, we don't need any help. We can do it all. It's perfect. But actually, of course, it's a job. Everyone gets training in their job. So Absolutely. it's it, it's silly for us to think, yeah, we just leave it. But it's also to deal with everything we shouldn't. There's some things we shouldn't deal with. I no. guess. So what would you what would you say are your coping strategies as a teacher now having had that support as a student and now having the teaching experience that you have what would you say the coping strategies are that you have as a as a teacher particularly one that's visiting so many different students all over the uk yeah for, for coping with your own mental health and your own kind of self-preservation for sure one thing that i struggle with is just it's not, yeah, with my own mental health. I guess I, I'm a list. I make so many lists and I make notes everywhere. Like I carry my, my iPad. It's got not only all my scores, it's got like just lists, notes. Like even as I'm talking to you just now, I'm making notes, you know, for, I don't know why it's something I've always done. I'm doing exactly the same. I, I I've got it here. <laughs> and I think if there's been anything in a lesson that said, I'll make sure I note it. And I think this is part of the documentation, sort of documenting, ev having evidence of certain things or just reminders to myself. That's specifically with the students, but then I, the students know also not to contact me um, off of, they can't contact me via phone or anything. It has to be through official emails now. That's something that changed across institutions across the UK, which makes it a lot better. Of course, when they get into the profession you exchange numbers because they become your colleagues rather than student-teacher relationship but but it's that clear boundary really isn't it yeah and also the biggest thing out of office <laughs> I, I'm a massive you can see my hands there I was going to uh, say for anyone that can't see Callum uh <laughs> Callum literally stuck his hands in the air like the emoji <laughs> out of office is the best thing ever because it not only puts you at peace and it's actually a wonderful colleague Lucy Drever who's associate artist with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra it was on a walk in a park with Lucy that we were discussing some of these things and she was like babe put an out of office on and I was like okay and working for so many different places you've got like seven email addresses so you do it for each one but honestly out of office is amazing and also yeah I guess I walk a lot in nature especially it's quite nice to do it with a colleague that you can just have a sort of like empty empty all your brain thoughts out on yeah just like having that relatability with somebody who gets it is so valuable isn't it yeah and someone who's got a similar sort of um schedule hectic schedule and traveling an awful lot I think it's the travel and I guess I use I try and use my travel time for a lot of peace so radio silence like I'll take I'll just turn my phone off as soon as I get to an airport or a train station and I try now not to uh, reply to people during travel time that's really interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you is how do you cope with the changing nature of the job but you've already kind of started touching on that so do you want to elaborate a bit more because it sounds like you're quite strict with your personal time 
I'm your work time. I'm strict with my practice as well. So I will practice first thing in the morning. I can go from half past eight for three hours. I then can't do anything in the middle of the day. I can do emails. I can do mindless, mundane tasks. And, and I go a walk in the middle of the day always. And then I can practice and be busy again in the evening. But that's how I've always been. And I found that to be, yeah. And also to, this is how geeky I am, to the extent that I will only do memorising in the morning and in the evening I will just do technical practice and passages because I feel fresh that I'm able to absorb in the morning. Mm-hmm. And this is something I do work with a lot of students on, trying to find their own sort of pattern that they can work at their optimum with. Um, but That's the gen- really inspiring, Callum, actually, because I've never actually sat and thought about myself like that as a musician. What times of the day do I work better? And now that I'm a musical mum, yeah Um, and i've you know my entire life is upside down that's actually quite a valuable tool for me to even think about going back to work now i'm at big noise and you know what's going to work for me because obviously my timetable's set at big noise but i do have freelance work that i do outside as well and managing that is sometimes quite difficult so you've struck a chord with me so I try it with students as well. And a lot of my students, when they first go to uni, of course, they love the long lies and they love. But I I try and get most of the students or colleagues or anyone in first thing in the morning. There's something about getting in. You have, I don't know, I certainly have more capacity to retain information. But in the middle of the day, I'm useless. Absolutely useless. Can't do anything. I can do a rehearsal. I can play. But I can't. Um, and I can teach all day. Yeah, I'm quite good. I can retain quite a lot of energy with teaching. I'm knackered at the end of the day. As soon as I finish, I'm out. Like, I'm <laughs> useless. I'm spent. But yeah, the morning, I'm definitely, that's a precious time for me, the morning. You're ready to kind of retain new information then? Always in the morning. But I will, for, like, if I learn some new music, and this is how systematic I am, new music, I know that what I learn, what say on Monday morning, this morning, I know tomorrow I'm going to have to spend the first hour retraining that. But then on Wednesday, it's going to be in. So I'm really systematic. I, it's, yeah, I, I guess because I have to. So just now I'm working on like four or five different programs of work. And so I have to be so organized in my approach. Otherwise, I don't, I won't attain the level that I want to showcase myself at. Are there ever times that, because I mean, you sound so unbelievably organised. And I just pulled out of a project. Okay. That's something that's meant to be happening in November, and there were some things in personal life, um, just with family members that I felt actually need to just go home a little bit. And home for me is up in the Isle of Skye, so it's quite far from Glasgow, and so I decided now to prioritise time and rest time. Rest time is so important. It's something only. I think during the pandemic, as we're coming out of it, I was accepting work again, left, right and centre. I was saying, yes, 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 please, thank you. But then you find yourself in this situation now where it's overwhelming and actually I've not blocked out day's rest, which I need for my body and my mind. And I had that last week. I'd come off a recital at the Fringe and I went back into practice on the Monday after the Friday night's recital and I worked Saturday and Sunday so I was just really really busy plus driving the van with instruments and then on Monday I just couldn't practice and I thought bugger this and so I cleared out my wardrobe 
I just absolutely, it was a mess. My wardrobe, as soon as I'm in project mode or performance mode, everything goes to pot in my wardrobe. And it's the one space that I just like to be calm. So I just pulled everything out and I actually threw out probably about half my wardrobe. I didn't throw out, I recycled. Um, and then, yeah, but that gave me a bit more clarity in my mind and it was niggling at me that I knew that this wardrobe was messy behind closed doors. So I had to spend time doing that. Then I went and spent some time in nature, went a couple of walks Monday, Tuesday with friends. And then on Wednesday, I was fine. So it's almost that that kind of switch off and that mindfulness that's needed by doing something that's not related to your job. But being kinder to herself to say, actually, do you know what? I've worked all weekend. And just because my partner works Monday to Friday, if it's Monday, doesn't that can be my Saturday. And Tuesday could be my Sunday. It's not you've wasted half the week, in, which is the mentality a lot of us still have because the normative week is Monday to Friday, weekend, Saturday, Sunday. Do you find having a partner that isn't a full-time musician, a professional musician, kind of grounds you? Because I've spoken to a few people about this recently, um, because there are those of us who are married to other musicians and there's that relatability there, but there's also that kind of bubble mentality that we had at music college or yeah. if if you've been in a band for years you're you know that's your family and then there's those of us who are with partners who just don't understand how crackers this job actually is <laughs> i'm so lucky because my partner colin is runs his own business it's amazing it's a business consultancy so it deals a lot with um it's people centric so it's all about development and making the environment the best possible so in some senses it's education as well but business but his first degree was in fine art. So he's very creative in his creative approach. So I'm really lucky because I have someone in my life who is my constant, is my stable, but also understands the creative element. So allows me like the day, the night before a concert or recital, something solo, he'll let me, um, or he'll go and sleep in the spare room for the night just so I can have a rest. You know, like a really good sleep because I would just toss and turn all night anyway. I'm terrible the night before a recital. Um, but yeah, so I'm really lucky. But I do think, yeah, he's really helped me. Actually helped me more as a business, I would say. Learn how to be a business and not just a musician surviving, you know? I think that's one of the biggest things. No, that's that's so sensible because, I mean, again, I've talked about this with a few people about how when we're, well, certainly when I was studying at the conservatoire and you and I were there at the same time, I personally felt like it was all instrument focused, get as good at your instrument as possible. But, you know, my own teacher focused on me, the individual, but there were other parts of it where that just wasn't even a consideration. And then even less than that was no education in music business at all. And I, I remember we, I think it was in my fourth year and we were in one of the lecture halls at the conservatoire and it was a half hour lecture on you know accountancy yeah and how to keep your accounts and tax and all of these things and i mean <laughs> to this day i still don't feel like i've got a full understanding of what that actually involves which is why i now have a musician's accountant and you think that is such a so i'm glad to be this is all this is all changed for um generations going through conservatoire at the moment they definitely do have that education we didn't have we did can you believe i only changed i only organized a separate business bank account last year i mean i only did one a couple of weeks ago yeah right that's mad that's mad so 
but these things we were lacking in our training it's become a lot more a lot more in the conservatory environment um and I guess at university as well a lot more about being able to work as a business it's something that we've had to learn slightly after and something I do do over the last few years I've still done professional qualification accredited qualifications in something like arts management or uh, I did one that was non-art specific managing people for growth that was just business industry generic but it was quite nice doing some uh, continued professional development in areas where or out with the arts kind of seeing it from an external point of view and learning things from other industries because there's some things like um, exercises and different like tables and tools and things like this that so you can a resources thing resource yeah that you can use and apply to music I don't know why like there's not more of this and maybe there is now but yeah something I do myself is definitely I try and look out for development opportunities even though I'm still playing and teaching all the time the pandemic was good for that I filled my time with some of these things yeah I was talking to um Dave Mastracola on the previous podcast about how he teaches music and he um, within his school at the Bourne Academy actually focuses on not only the creative side but the business side as well because he wants the young people when they leave whether they want a career in music or not to be able to have the skills to earn something from music you know yeah. whether it's gigging in a pub or busking or you know working in a recording studio in some way just so that they've got the full scope of what the tools are to be able and, to actually do this job and the an arts degree is so highly sought after in any industry job because it, there are so many transferable skills. But one of the most fundamental things that I just know we weren't taught was fees. And as a solo chamber musician, we set our own fees or we are approached. I say we set now because I do set my own fees because I won't. I, I only in the last couple of years have started to negotiate. That's something we weren't taught, negotiating skills as a musician, you know, because you were so used to just going um, and doing extra work in the orchestras or, you know, going to do gigs and it was just set rates. You just accepted it because that was money and you were earning money and we we're all very lucky and we should just sit tight. But the now prestige as well of actually playing with that group, you think, oh, well, they've asked me. So, I mean, this must, you know, this must be enough. But the truth is, yeah, nowadays I do negotiate and I really still people some people don't talk about fees very often but I will speak to there's a few colleagues that I can talk to who do similar work that I do and we're all very open to each other which is really really nice that's ace because I mean fees are such a yeah a, a prevalent issue at the moment with the cost of living increase and all of these things that are yeah. going on within just even fuel to get to a gig is extortionate now compared to when we we left music college and in terms of fees, it's such a difficult one because there's so many things attributed to that. There's your self-worth and yeah. not wanting to feel like you're, I don't know, bigging yourself up too much, you know, so there's a self-confidence element there too. There's a competitive element because, you know, if you're running a business that is similar to yeah. someone else's, then you, you've almost got to think, well, I want to pay these people properly. I've got it with my string quartet business. I want to pay everyone properly. But I'm also aware that there's another nine string quartets out there who will potentially charge less just to get the work. And yeah. there will be musicians that always take it. So it's trying to strike that balance. And I mean, certainly for me, I've made a conscious decision from now on that each year the fees within my quartet will go up incrementally 
totally. I'm not I'm not in a position to be able to just whack them up straight away. No, and I think it's really important. So I've got a very close colleague, um, Leo, who's a soloist in Manchester, his deputy at the Royal Northern. And both of us, we toured the international competition circuit together and we're both Yamaha artists on the same marimba. Um, so we see each other quite often, but we're not in the same city. And so there's, and again, when you say, you know, there's someone who undercut, Leo and I are of, we have such a great friendship because we agree that just as artists, we're just very different. So the gig that he might be booked on, I would never be booked on that because that's not the artist I am. Whereas what I'm booked for, he would not be booked for, you know? And so, but we're very open and honest about this. And, you know, and if he finds a piece of repertoire, he's like, this is so you, take it. You know, and it's same, I would take something from me. So it's nice to find, to have that relationship. I do have this cross um, instruments as well so I've got a harpist friend Olivia Jagers who does a lot of um, contemporary music um, a lot of sort of entrepreneurial concerts really really cool and she's someone that I'll quite often phone up and we'll discuss fees or discuss you know what happens oh so and so got booked for this gig oh that's okay that's totally okay because if it, if you were meant for that gig you would have been called for it and I think that's where we need to make peace with ourselves because really we can't compete with anyone. You know, no. you only offer what it is you can. Um, that's something I'm trying to tell students. And also that's to do with fees as well. I will offer my fee. And if I'm in a position because of teaching and, you know, other work, if that gig doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, it's okay. You know, give it to whoever you want who's going to be cheaper. If you if you want me, you'll pay for me. And that's the we when you said we don't want to be overconfident, actually we need more than ever to be more confident. Absolutely. More and we need to call out everything that we see that's wrong in the industry. This is something that not industry, just industry and also in practice. So rehearsals and socializing. If you hear anything, never ever talk bad about anyone who's in the same room as you. Just don't talk bad about anyone who's in the industry. You know, it doesn't matter. And I think now kindness across the industry is needed more than ever. But yeah, we do need this sort of like stand together a little bit more. Yeah, that was something that I was talking about with Greg about this nurturing music community. So yeah. something that I've made quite a conscious choice about in the last few months even is to really be hyper aware of how I'm talking when I'm at work because it affects my own mental state if I'm talking negatively. And that's not to say that people shouldn't have their own feelings or their own emotions or their own opinions on anything. But when it comes to that kindness element, like you say, we don't know what someone else is going through. Yeah. We don't want to go putting somebody's worth on whether they've paid, like played a correct note or so played perfectly in tune or any of these things. And I've kind of got to that stage now where I'm just exhausted with the negativity. I don't know what your feelings really, on that are. It's a really, really good analogy I saw. And I love social media as much as people hate, like are frustrated. It's become a tool that we need to use. And I, I mine is very professional. I'm not using it for social, uh, personal things anymore, really. The odd thing, maybe the odd carrot or potato I've grown, but you know, um, most of it's just work because it is a tool for work. Um, but there was a great analogy on something the other day and it was saying 
even though we say that musicians are athletes and we train like athletes, there was something, and I disagree with it in some respects, but it was saying, but sports people and sports can be objective. You either win or you lose. I disagree with that to a certain extent, because of course you can feel bad and still win. You know, this is very interesting conversation. But then they were saying the arts and the music is so subjective because even though we finish the symphony or we finish the performance, are you congratulated for finishing or are you criticised or critiqued for the performance? So this is an interesting conversation to have because actually, who cares? As I, in my own teaching, my own playing, who cares if I slip off a note? It is more important to stay in the story and to tell the narrative of the piece than to be 100% technical, metronomic, you know, like a robot, you know? But it's interesting because in sports, I do think though there's bad days, people maybe not play or perform at their best, but still achieve something. But it's this goal that's really celebrated. It's something I think we need to look at and how we actually frame it in music, especially with concerts and recitals. You know, all those notes from memory. Who cares? Absolutely. Who cares? It's, you know, it's so much. It's so impressive. And actually, we should just be, yeah. Human. I'm a lot, yeah, a lot more human. And even in my own performance, I'm much happier now. I guess it's maybe in my 30s, I'm starting to feel just a lot more settled and grounded in what it is I do. But that's experience as well. It does take time to be able to find your own voice. And there's no substitute for time either. You know, no. time is one of these things where you might get to the end of music college and feel like you're expected to know it all, but you're actually just at the beginning. I at the very beginning. What my students, we talk about my younger students, especially, they're like, so how much do you still practice? And I'm like, hours, hours a day. Of course I can play the instruments. But it's the notes, you're learning new music all the time, you know, so. Absolutely. Music's a journey. And that's yeah. something that I've really needed to get into my own head, never mind anybody else's. Music is a journey. Uh, and it's not the end destination because it's ever changing. There are so many different people's opinions on one piece. Yeah. Let alone on one performance. Because like you say, every performance will be completely different. So. Yeah having having judgment on music versus uh, critique as long as it's you know constructive criticism it doesn't yeah. always have to be positive constructive criticism in any kind of creative art form is a really valuable thing provided you're in a comfortable enough mindset to be able to take that constructive criticism and then decide whether actually it's for you you know you yeah. don't have to agree with it for sure but i do think is artists musicians we need to get be much much better at taking feedback and giving feedback we're terrible at it because we were taught the feedback it was about wrong notes wrong phrasing why are you doing this what what's your bow doing what sticking are you doing all but this also but also as a power trip as well i found like yeah. performance classes for me were the most miserable experience because i'd get up to play and I'd, I'd just be thinking about what does everyone else think about me? The creativity side of things never even came into it once. Well, I, I my first performance, solo performance back at post-pandemic was at the Royal College of Music and it was given a masterclass um, plus performance to the percussion department. There's almost 30 odd students. 
and I have an amazing relationship with the college there. Um, I work there. I previously worked there in the junior department before coming up to Scottish. And I studied there for a year, my final year of studying. And I love the department so much. But I started my performance presentation basically by talking to them because I was nervous. I told them I was nervous. It's my first performance in 18 months. It was live. Of course, I did other projects during the pandemic like the album. But it's my first live one. And to a really difficult audience. And it shouldn't be difficult. It's another audience. But it's the same instrument. They're your peers, you know, and they're in a critical thinking environment so it's quite difficult for them just to sit and enjoy a performance you know so I spoke to them about this and I spoke to them about my nerves and what to do and so we did some breathing some grounding which is a big thing that I learned from a sports psychologist when I was studying at Royal College something that I still do I breathe and ground an awful lot before performance for at least 15 minutes and then I played and see, because I had them on side and I had that connection and conversation going, I really relaxed into the performance and I really enjoyed it. Like I had such a nice time. But for them, what they, we always do a reflection session at the end of any of my sessions. And they said it was really nice just to know that, you know, nerves happen and that we can just breathe it out. We can talk about it. You know, these are all normal human things. Um, but yeah, it's just that being human thing isn't it it all comes back down to absolutely so with that in mind I've been asking everybody this within your career so far what would you say has been the highest point for you and what would you say your lowest point had been there's so many highs I feel privileged in so many I had goals sort of two to three year goals five year goals when I left my education and I always dreamt of becoming professorial staff at conservatoire in the UK and I did that at quite a young age so when you achieve your goal you then sort of what's next so then I decided okay I was endorsed by Coburg Percussion at that point which was my teacher's brand and I thought okay I want to change endorsement to something there was an opportunity with Yamaha and I thought this is a bigger platform for me and it happened so I kind of achieved that and then the album with Delphian was definitely yeah a moment it was a really difficult time in the pandemic and it was hard to be so alone in this studio that I'm sitting in and to do a whole album by myself. It was a lonely time. It was a lonely 10 months of prep and 10 months of hard prep. But it was an amazing achievement to do. And then I was so proud when it came out. You know, looking back, it's such a difficult time to have been able to have something tangible to actually celebrate. So that was really nice. And it also, it was time to practice again. You know, I should appreciate that time we had.
So these things have all been highlights. I don't know what's the next highlight. That's what I don't have a goal at the moment. And I would really like a goal. So I'm in a bit of a two minds about what it could be, but um, I'm working on that. The lowest point. Oh, this is a bit of a difficult one because I think the lowest point was just being so eager, so young. My brother took a year out. We were really young. I was 16 when I auditioned for the conservatoire. Me and too. I, yeah. And I just, Welcome to the, the Scottish school system yeah, where we had to audition so young. So young. And I just feel as though maybe if I'd taken more time, because I knew I continued studying for quite a long time to, to further my education, but I just felt as though I wasn't taken seriously at a young age. It was difficult. And I, I think some low points were about being like a young queer person. It was quite difficult, especially in such a male-dominated, heterosexual male-dominated instrument area. But that's all changing, you know? And so I look, and I'm part of the change as much as possible about advocating for a global majority and like LGBTQ plus IA, all this. So I think I wish I had a little bit more time when I was younger maybe would have been less eager, less rushed. Yeah, but it's as you say, time is so precious, I don't know. To be honest, I'm quite happy with where I'm at. It's a nice... That's a lovely thing to hear. You know, I don't think you hear that as often. But it's such a privilege to do what we do, to be, have this career. It's such a privilege and we should never forget it because we could be doing a lot of other things. Um, earning money we could be less stimulated with our jobs less happy with our jobs but actually we get to have this diversity in our career that's wonderful and be able to share the wonderful thing that is music you know absolutely I'm going to backtrack slightly there and ask what changes you feel there have been within the LGBTQ plus IA community since kind of leaving music college and feeling that uncomfortableness into now I was told in an orchestral section once and orchestra is something I'm not doing anymore. Like I'm really solo chamber, unless the orchestra is needing a specific skill set, like marimba, multi setup, which the BBC Synth had me in to do a Frank Zappa concert, which was really, really nice. Um, at the Barbican, you know, if they call me to do things like this, yes, of course, that's my skill set. Let's go. But other people care much, much more about the orchestral repertoire, different instruments like cymbals and bass drum. Like it's such a skill that they deserve to be offered those opportunities, not me. So I think that's really where I'm at. But in orchestra, I was once told not to be so flamboyant. And I was just a bit taken aback by it. And I thought, right. And I didn't say anything to anyone about this for years, but I was just really uncomfortable because I've always just been me. I've never tried to be something that I'm not. And I'd never, it never come up again. I'd never come up against it before. So I decided, okay, but now it's so beautiful because obviously throughout the years, I've been teaching at different junior institutes and whatnot, but I was recently, there's some of these junior students who, identify as non-heterosexual who are now in conservatoire departments and I had recently had we were all doing a social a sort of generation of percussionists and some of them were there it was really nice to see them out of education settings you know old enough to enjoy a pint or whatever and of course drinks were flung but then at the end of the night a couple of them came up and just thanked me for being 
for them to be able to see themselves represented within the industry. And to me, that was like, yes, I'm doing the right thing. I am going to shout about it. And I'm going to make sure that people know, because it's so important that young people can see themselves represented, regardless of what that means, you know, what that looks like. Um, and I would say I'm pushing now more than ever for people who identify as non-male, so female or non-binary, to be part of courses, departments, as much as possible. So, for example, the Percussion Summer School I just led at the Conservatoire at Scotland in Scotland, um, there was five female-identifying young people and only two boys. So that was really, really cool. So we're like, we're pushing, and at Trinity we have a lot of um, women and non-binary, so it's really, really nice to um, sort of culture that. But I do think it comes with the sort of environment you you offer. You know, and I'm, I'm at Trinity, so they see that there's that openness there, that willingness to just, like, open arms, like, come, you know? Absolutely. And I think what yeah. I've heard more than anything there is that, you know, people are so much more than any label. They are the individual. Some people prefer to be identified by those labels now, and it's absolutely right for that. But to then be targeted because of that label so like you know to be told to not be flamboyant like you know what 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 does that even i have many mean? many um heterosexual colleagues who are more flamboyant than me you know exactly. it, it doesn't i don't know why i know what the person was trying to say but they couldn't quite articulate that no. um, but it doesn't make a difference and also there's things have changed you know social media um technology like everything is much more we're much more aware of things why not be ourselves you know have fun this sort of um I would say, yeah more old-fashioned old traditional take in the classical musicians it's not and it's non-existent just because you have a classical training doesn't mean you have to be live a classical musician you don't have to be Mozart you know no you don't have to be a stereotype no for sure how boring <laughs> you're rock stars of their time but now it's time for us to be rock stars of our time you know Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So to just close, I will ask you the same thing that I've asked everyone else so far. And if you were giving advice to your younger self, knowing what you know now as a musician within the industry, what do you think you would say? Don't be scared to call things out. I think it's so important that whether it's behaviour, language, the way interactions, you know, the way we interact with people, call it out it's not acceptable it wouldn't be acceptable in any other other industry and so why should it still be allowed just because you're scared like you said at the beginning about um you know you're scared would, will you get the next gig it doesn't matter the one piece of work that you're guaranteed is the work you create yourself and as a musician we have that ability to do it so don't be worried about working I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Callum. It's been absolutely amazing and actually really inspirational to listen to you talk. So I'm actually so looking forward to kind of reevaluating my day and thinking about when I yeah. actually work best. Yes, do it. I will do. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thank you. Everybody.